work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription hello and welcome to the past and the curious my name is mick sullivan and i'm so glad you're joining us this is a really really exciting episode My good friend, Heather Gottlieb, has written a wonderful story. I'm a huge fan of her writing, and I'm a huge fan of the story that she's telling, which is about Patty Hill. Think you don't know who Patty Hill is? Think again. You might be surprised. I have a story about one of Patty's friends, a sculptor named Enid Yandel. I also have really big news in the middle of the show, so listen to that right before quiz time. And I'm also super excited to have, for the first time on my show, my new friend Dan Sachs of the podcast Noodle Loaf. If you have kids and you love music, Noodle Loaf, it really speaks to me. It is absolutely one of my favorite podcasts. My son and I listen to it on the way to daycare so often. It's so much fun. Lots of music, lots of great stuff. Dan helped me out because I have a new baby in the house and that made making a song difficult. So he put together a wonderful song that's very much in line with Noodle Loaf. But we gotta go. 34 million miles away. Just before an explorer of the galaxy known as the Milky Way might encounter a circumstellar disk known more familiarly as the asteroid belt, rests the celestial body known as Mars. Mars, the red planet, named by the English-speaking humans of Earth after the Roman god of war. To these earthlings, a curious species that have tasked themselves with the mission to explore every corner of their own planet and beyond, Mars is fascinating. Visible to the naked eye since ancient times, Mars holds the promise of many things. Its similarity to Earth is enticing to earthlings, who dream of trekking across the vast red deserts of this lonely planet. No human has set foot on Mars yet, although they have imagined what it might be like for hundreds of years. Earthling technology has not advanced far enough to allow these dreamers to set foot on the iron-rich dust that coats the surface of Mars. But for a few decades, they have been able to explore the planet with other means. Robotic means. August 5th, 2013. Curiosity, the Mars rover makes its way along the craters and volcanic plains of the planet it has been tasked with exploring. Today is not just any day, filled with data collection and the occasional photograph of the robot's findings. Today, the Mars rover takes time to do something it does not normally do. It sings a song. Okay, enough with the science fiction vibe. 
Why out of every day of the year, 365 on Earth and 687 on Mars to be exact, would a robot the size of a car sing happy birthday of all songs? Well, that's a long story. Buckle in, space explorers, you're time travelers now, and it's time to go back to the Middle Ages. Compared to our lives now, the Middle Ages probably don't sound very fun. Unless you were royalty, a king, queen, princess, knight, you know the drill. You spent your life working very hard on a farm, or maybe making things that the people around you needed, like shoes or candles. There was no such thing as pizza, YouTube, podcasts, those were all a long way away. Hundreds of years ago, if you lived in Europe, you probably didn't know how to write your own name, let alone when your birthday was. In fact, we only know the birthdays of two of Henry VIII's six wives, and that was because they were princesses to start with. Only royalty could be sure of when their birthday was. Life wasn't quite as dreary as people make it out to be, though. People still celebrated things. A lot of those celebrations had to do with the Catholic Church, which shaped many parts of people's lives back then. There were lots of special days celebrating saints when people took a day off work and feasted. The saints were very important. In fact, almost everyone was named after a saint. And if you shared a name with a saint, their day was your day too. If your name was Michael, for example, you would party on September 29th, also known as Michaelmas. If you were Catherine, you would celebrate the Feast of St. Catherine on November 25th, along with all the other Catherines in town. Did I mention that back then about 70% of girls shared the same 10 names? And the same went for boys. So it was kind of like having a name twin and a birthday twin at the same time. This was known as a name day. As times changed, people got better at keeping records, doctors started getting better at what they did, and something called leisure time was invented. Life became a lot less work and a lot more play, and people started to think that maybe this period of time, known as childhood, was something special that needed to be respected. In comes Patti Smith-Hill. She was a normal little girl who had a really special relationship with her family. Born in 1868, she grew up on the grounds of a school where her father was principal, the Bellwood Female Seminary. Like the Mars Rover, the name of the game for Patty was curiosity. Her family's philosophy could be summed up in two words, wise freedom. That meant that as long as Patty was making good choices, she was able to explore the beautiful grounds of the Bellwood Female Seminary as much as she wanted and spend her time learning about the world. This was really modern thinking. Children were not treated very differently than adults for much of recorded history, and playtime was considered an indulgence, something you can enjoy after you get all the important stuff done, the way you have to have dinner before you get any dessert. Many regular kids had to work to help their families, whether it was by doing household chores or actually going to a factory and doing a job all day. If you had told someone that kids could learn by having fun and asking questions about the things they saw in the world, they would have looked at you like you were from Mars. But Patty was lucky. Although she still had to help around the house some, because this really was an era when the dishes wouldn't wash themselves, her mom made sure that everything was fun and felt like a game. She did this with the help of a Scottish nanny named Marianne, who could turn the most boring jobs into magic by weaving in fairy tales and songs and her sister Mildred, who was the musical one of Patty's five brothers and sisters. When Patty was old enough to go to school, her dad made sure that she got to study things like geology and really fancy math. 
This was different from the path that girls normally got to take, since they were expected to learn how to show off their ladylike skills like sewing and playing the piano. When Patty was only 10, her life changed forever when her father died. Her heart was broken, and the family had to make changes, like moving to be closer to their mother's family. Money was tight, and everyone would need to help out as soon as they could to make ends meet. Where some people would have given up, Patty decided to use her heartbreak to make the world better, perhaps as a way of honoring her father's memory. Because her dad was such a big fan of education and learning and helping people, Patty felt that being a teacher was a great way to make a difference in the world. She was lucky, too, because it was a great time to be a teacher. School was starting to change, and Patty got to be one of the people who changed it from the inside. In order to talk about the changes that were happening, let's think about how school careers go now. You go to preschool, and then you go to kindergarten. Then comes first grade, second grade, all the way up through 12th grade. If you had said the word preschool to someone in the 1880s, they would have no idea what you're talking about, just like if you had said birthday to somebody in the 1380s. The reason that things were starting to change was because of a new concept that was emerging, the idea of childhood. What? Do I mean there was no such thing as a kid 130 years ago? No, I don't mean that exactly. There were definitely kids. People weren't getting up out of their cradles, putting on their suits and going to work. But childhood means something different now. We understand that being a kid means you need to learn and grow and have fun, and the world in general tries to do everything they can to help kids do that. But in the 1880s, that was a new and exciting idea. A long time ago, if children were lucky, they were supposed to be seen and not heard. If they weren't lucky, they had to go to work. Some kids even did especially dangerous jobs because they were conveniently small enough to do it, like sweeping chimneys. Society in general wasn't concerned with making sure kids didn't smoke or gamble, let alone eat their vegetables or learn their ABCs. But Patty lived during a time called the Progressive Era, when people started looking at the problems all around them and trying to find ways to fix them. They were able to start doing this because, in a lot of ways, life had gotten easier. The Progressive Era came after the Industrial Revolution, when people started using machines to do the hard work that had occupied their entire lives before. This came with a whole new set of problems, but it also came with a lot more free time than people were used to. Some people started to use this free time to really look at the world around them and see what they could do to make it better. Many of these people were women, like Patty, whose families had defied expectations and let their daughters go to school and get educations that they could put to good use. And one of the ways people wanted to make the world better was through education and making sure that all kids got a chance at having one, even little kids. People like Patty thought that if you appreciated even the littlest kids and helped them learn and grow, then things would keep getting better, and in a lot of ways they were right. Patty was one of the first kindergarten teachers in her hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. She taught kindergarten all through her college years, and then when she graduated, she got to be the director of the kindergarten training school in Louisville, kind of like the principal. Patty was good at her job. She was so good that the person who had opened the school told Patty that she was allowed to do basically whatever she wanted to try to figure out what the best way to do this kindergarten thing would be. Patty believed that there were a lot of ways that kindergarten could set kids on the right path. Many of the kids in her school were poor, and so she made sure that everyone felt special and had everything they needed. She used lots of tools that you've probably seen in your own school. 
One of them was the tool of collaboration or letting kids figure out how to work together. She did this by inventing some really big blocks that kids could use to build things together, which are still used in schools today. Or at least when your friendly podcast team were young kindergarten whippersnappers last millennium. Sounds like a big word and a weird concept, maybe. But think about the last time you worked in a small group in school. Before Patty Smith Hill style kindergarten, that was unheard of. Another thing that Patty believed in was learning through music. She remembered her own childhood and her nurse Marianne fondly. Marianne could make even the most boring things like doing laundry fun through little songs and helped the Hill children learn things through songs too. Patty decided to channel Marianne with her students, and so they made sure to sing every day with the help of her musical sister Mildred, who was a composer. One of the songs they sang a lot was called Good Morning to You. They used the tune a lot and would change the words around depending on what was going on that day. If someone in class was going on a trip, they'd sing Good Journey to You. One day, down at a summer cottage in the woods in South Louisville, it was somebody's birthday, and Mildred and Patty busted out their trusted melody to sing, guess what? Happy birthday to you. How Happy Birthday to You got to be the most famous song in the English language is a story for another time, but it's safe to say it's up there. It's the only song ever sung on Mars, for goodness sake. But it certainly had something to do with the idea that people, even the littlest kids, were special, and that they should feel special and celebrated. And it's no coincidence that a song that we sing to make sure people feel appreciated year after year on the day they were born was written by someone who felt these beliefs as strongly as Patti Smith Hill did. And if you ever feel sad about the Mars rover sitting up on that dusty red planet all alone on its birthday, just remember, although kids have feelings and they are important, robots don't, as far as we know. Thanks, Heather. And now here's some big news. Oh my gosh, I did it. I wrote a book. And my friend Shay Goodlett made incredible illustrations and my friends at Early Works Press will be putting it out this spring, 2019. It's hard to believe, but it's about my favorite bizarre story in history. The day in 1876 when meat, 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 fell from the sky in Olympia Springs, Kentucky. Now, if you're listening in February, stay tuned. If you're listening in the future, what are you doing? Go find a copy. Stay tuned for pre-sale info and we'll have teasers on social media up very soon. The Meat Shower by Mick Sullivan coming in 2019. Hey, Esme, guess what? It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Brothers and sisters, sisters and brothers, here is your first quiz time question. Another set of siblings are responsible for something else most kids will be familiar with. Do you know what type of story Wilhelm and Jacob Grimm are famous for publishing? If you said fairy tales, you should give yourself a pat on the back. The Grimm Brothers fairy tales are some of the most enduring stories in the world. Now, for the most part, the brothers weren't actually authors, 
but they recorded a lot of traditional folk stories and published them in a collection. The version of stories like Cinderella and Bremen Town Musicians that were originally included in the book from 1812 they're not quite like the stories that we know today. In fact, some of them are pretty scary in comparison. Question number two. What pair of siblings from Salzburg, Austria, amazed royal audiences as young children with their incredible musicianship? Most people know about the amazing Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, but not everyone knows about his older sister, Maria Anna Mozart. The young woman was labeled a genius, a virtuoso, and a prodigy just like her younger brother would be. In fact, many people attribute Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's incredible early development to sitting beside his older sister while she was learning before him. Okay, here comes your third and final question. Most people know that actor John Wilkes Booth assassinated Abraham Lincoln. But what favor did his brother Edwin Booth do for the Lincoln family before the tragic event? The Lincolns only had one son who survived into adulthood, and that was Robert. If it hadn't been for Edwin Booth, he might not have survived either. At a crowded train station in New Jersey, Robert Lincoln exited a train right in front of Edwin Booth, but in the commotion, he fell between the platform and the train, which had started to move. Edwin grabbed the young man by his collar and pulled him to safety, most likely saving his life. Booth had no idea who the boy was, but the boy knew him because he was a very famous actor. Booth didn't actually find out what he had done until he got an official thank you note from President Lincoln. Ancient Greek mythology is filled with some amazing and dramatic personalities. Nearly all of the Greek gods of legend had tremendous backstories, but sometimes the mythical stories of their births are far more dramatic than their fictional lives could ever be. The legendary Helen of Troy, said to be the most beautiful woman in the ancient kingdom of Greece, hatched from an egg but that's nothing compared to others emerging from their father's thigh or arriving as a result of magic golden raindrops, as was the case with Perseus. Nothing, though, can beat Athena, the goddess with so many specialties that they couldn't all fit on her business card. Palace Athena, at your service. Goddess of wisdom, courage, inspiration, civilization, law and justice, strategic warfare, mathematics, strength, strategy, the arts, crafts, and skill. One version of her birth might go like this. Zeus. The most powerful of all the gods had a splitting headache. Like the worst headache imaginable. Way too big of a job for Tylenol or aspirin. So he sought the help of a friend who said, You know what you need? You need a good whack in the head with my axe. Hmm. It was the best idea Zeus had heard at that point. But personally, I would have asked for a second opinion. It must have been a really bad headache because he accepted and the axe was swung. Zeus, being all-powerful, healed right quickly, but not before the source of the headache was revealed. A fully grown woman dressed in armor stepped out of the hole in his head, and that was Athena. You'd probably have a headache too. In the new world, the world we know today, which is free of armored women popping out of skulls, the image of this bringer of Olympian-sized headaches can still be found, and Athena remains a symbol of progress, skill, 
wisdom, and all of the things that she represented in her old world. Her name lives on in cities like Athens and her likeness in the many sculptures around the world. One of the most magnificent and interesting only stood for a short time at Nashville's World's Fair. The creator was a 27-year-old woman named Enid Yandel, a Kentucky-born artist living in Paris. In 1893, when Enid was 23, she was an artist working as crews scrambled to finish the magnificent grounds of the Chicago World's Fair. This spectacular city built within a city would bring millions of visitors to see the latest and greatest of technology and entertainment, education, and products. It was a celebration of progress, and for the lucky attendees, the fair was the first chance to ride a Ferris wheel, chew on some juicy fruit gum, and actually hear the Pledge of Allegiance. But before the hordes could gawk at the beautiful fairgrounds while filling their faces with gum and a new cereal called Shredded Wheat, which is a very bad combination, by the way, well, the many buildings and cultivated lands of the grounds actually had to be built, which they were, by the skin of the organizer's teeth. Part of the fair's attraction was a display for each state in the Union, giving the states a chance to show what made each and every one of them special. And Enid was chosen to create a sculpture for her native Kentucky. The subject was another legendary Kentuckian, Daniel Boone. And to do so, Enid was able to use not only original portraits of the famed pioneer, but she also used the dead frontiersman's very own shirt, powder horn, long rifle, and satchel while designing the statue. Apparently, none of his stuff was haunted, but if it were, she might have called him Daniel Boone. Boone! Daniel Boone! But her work at the fair didn't end there. She was on a team of women who hustled to create the beautiful women's building, which would showcase to the visitors the best art, music, and other creations of women from all over America. For this building, Ina designed the keratids, which are sculptures of people used as support for the roof of a structure. So imagine a line of stone women balancing the top of a building on their heads, and you pretty much got the picture. Enid wasn't just going to put a random face on these stone ladies, though. She figured it was a golden opportunity to highlight a special woman, and she knew just the lady. It was her lifelong friend and fellow World Fair attendee and co-writer of Happy Birthday. Balancing the rooftop garden on their heads were a dozen or so stone, toga-wearing Mildred Hills. It was quite a way to be immortalized. Well, actually... Mildred Hill would be immortalized through her song, but not by those sculptures. When the fair ended, the buildings were slowly destroyed, and the only building that remains now houses Chicago's Museum of Science and Industry. Not long after the beautiful fairgrounds fell silent, and then just fell down, Enid boarded a steamer for Paris. It was wonderful to work in a beautiful city, but she was also able to learn from masters in the area, including Auguste Rodin, who's probably best known for the sculpture of the seated, ponderous, naked man known as the Thinker. Have you seen that? Eventually, word reached France of the need for a main sculpture for the new upcoming Nashville World's Fair, and the job ultimately fell into the capable and careful hands of Enid Yandel. Nashville was called the Athens of the South, so its World Fair was to be a decidedly Greek affair. The fine arts hall they would build for the event would be an exact, and I mean exact, replica of the Parthenon, one of the most famous buildings from ancient Greece, and the building that is said to have served as Athena's temple in the Greek myth. So Enid's giant sculpture of goddess Athena would be a perfect fit, 
towering 42 feet above the ground, right outside the Parthenon, watching approvingly over the bustling fairgrounds. She set to work in her Paris studio, working with staff, a mixture that looks like stone when it dries. For months, she worked to bring the giant Greek goddess to life, building platforms so she could climb up to the giant lady's chest and neck. Knowing she'd have to ship it via steamer across the ocean to New Orleans and then upriver again to Nashville, the sculpture was created in several pieces which could be assembled when she arrived in Tennessee. But before that, Enid apparently couldn't resist a good idea when she had one. The project had been a work of love, and it can be hard to say goodbye to someone who you've spent countless hours with. Why, giant Athena was practically an old friend by now, and it turned out this old friend was as hollow as a tunnel, and she was still surrounded by much of that wooden scaffolding Enid had used to reach her highest points. So Enid decided to do what you do for any friend who's heading across the ocean for a long time. You have a going away party! The night before the goddess would be boxed up for shipment, she invited some friends over for an unusual bon voyage. It's said they cooked some dinner, poured some wine, and had a candlelight dinner inside of Athena's hollow torso. It was probably cramped in there, and it was probably dark, but it was also probably pretty cool to turn the tables on a goddess who had made her entry into the world by popping out of someone else's body and go climbing around inside of her torso instead. After one last bon voyage, the goddess made her way to America. A picture of Enid looking tiny compared to the giant she was making was taken just before, and it was so striking that it became the cover of the World's Fair program. And as the millions of people streamed into the fair between May and October of 1897, they were greeted by this towering woman in the photo. Like the Chicago World's Fair, the Nashville one was not made to last. The reproduction of the Parthenon still stands today, but the rest is mostly a park. Athena, sadly, is gone. She wasn't purposely destroyed, though. The staff material that Enid used is not permanent, and the statue was never cast in bronze, which is a very expensive process. So slowly, the weather wore her down. Her features were softened with each rain, until about a year later, there was literally nothing left. In a way, it's a shame that there is nothing to survive of Enid's Athena. But perhaps that made it more special for the people who did get to see it. After this, Enid's reputation grew and grew. The following year, she became the first woman to join the National Sculpture Society. And today, surviving examples of her work can be found in Kentucky and Maine, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and a few other locations. She's actually buried near my home in Louisville, Kentucky. And I think it's kind of funny that this creator of beautiful sculptures lies underneath one of the most boring and plain monuments you could imagine. Ah, oh, thanks, me. Good job. Here's Dan Sachs of Noodle Loaf. We're all traveling around the sun, me and you and everyone. Our trips began on different days, we may speak in different ways, but we all say... Feliz cumpleaños. Alles Gute zum Geburtstag. We're all traveling around the sun, me and you and everyone. Our trips began on different days, but we may speak in different ways. We all say 
Nyomorostenya. Nyomorostenya. Buon compleanno. Happy birthday! We're all traveling around the sun. Me and you and everyone. Our trips began on different days. We may speak in different ways. We all Man, I love what that guy does. You guys got to check out Noodle Loaf. Thanks, Dan Sachs. Thank you, Heather Gottlieb, for your excellent story. And thank you, person listening, for listening. My name is Mick Sullivan, and this has been The Past and the Curious. If you are interested in hearing your voice on The Past and the Curious, you should check out thepastandthecurious.com and learn about the You Have 30 Second Project. Tell us what you think is awesome about history, a person, place, or thing, but you only have 30 seconds to do it. Stay tuned for more information about The Meat Shower. And I have one more important piece of business. I have a song that I wrote for my Patreon sponsor, Esme. This goes out to you. Talk to you next time, everybody.